Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on Contact to send me a message. And now, on with the interview. Hi, this is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. June is Pride Month, so it's appropriate that today we're talking about LGBTQ psychology, in particular, how to teach LGBTQ psychology to mental health professionals. I feel personally connected to this topic because I am a gay psychologist who works a lot with the LGBTQ population in my clinical work, as well as in teaching, writing, and presenting. And so I've had the chance to observe how it is that LGBTQ mental health issues get taught in schools and how they get talked about in professional and non-professional settings. My conclusion is that we're doing better at teaching about this topic than we were when I was in grad school, but there's still much room for improvement, which is why I'm so grateful to my guests today, Theo Burns and Jeannie Stanley, They're the editors of the new book, Teaching LGBTQ Psychology, Queering Innovative Pedagogy and Practice, published in 2017 by American Psychological Association. I want to tell you about my guests. Dr. Theodore Burns is Associate Professor and Director of the LGBT Specialization of Antioch University's Clinical Psychology Master's Program. He's got 15 years of experience constructing, facilitating, and evaluating undergraduate and graduate coursework in psychology, black studies, writing, LGBT studies, poetry, women's studies, teacher education, and counseling in various university settings. And he's a licensed psychologist and licensed professional clinical counselor in private practice in Los Angeles. Dr. Jeannie Stanley is executive director of Watershed Counseling and Consultation Services, and regularly conducts training around the country on best practices for supporting and affirming LGBTQ individuals, and is also a licensed psychologist in private practice in the Chestnut Hill area of Philadelphia. Jeannie and Theo, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. So maybe a good place to start would be to tell us what this book is about. Well, it, it really came out of what was missing. I remember when I was a graduate student, we would always wait to... I would always wait to that one time when we would have that one last class that would talk about LGBT issues. And it seemed every time that when we get to that last class, we were out of time and it'd be like, oh gosh, sorry about that, but read the chapter. And from there, it just kept going for many times of it not being taught in undergrad or graduate programs. And when I was at the University of Pennsylvania directing a master's program, it was a unique opportunity to be able to really um, have a course that was specific to LGBT psychology and uh, get it accepted and moved into the graduate program. So from that, um, I actually at that point was stepping into another role. So Theodore, Theo had come on and started teaching the course. 
And we realized very quickly that there was not a lot of information out there at all. There was information about teaching multicultural counseling, but not some of the unique issues that are uh, relevant to LGBTQ individuals. So, Theo, I'm wondering if you had a similar experience, if, if a similar path brought you to want to write a book like this or put together a book like this. Yeah. I, so the only thing, uh, yeah, the, the experience was extremely similar. I think the only thing that um, I would add is that um, Jeannie and I, I think, worked really closely together in recognizing not only that there wasn't literature that spoke about teaching LGBTQ psychology, but that the literature that was out there was very pathology focused and that anything that was related to teaching about LGBTQ people often really resonated with kind of studies or literature that was mostly about kind of um, uh, really pathology focused. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm alcohol and drug literature, STI, STD prevention literature, which is important and didn't really speak to the wide range of experiences um, related to LGBTQ people in communities. So I think we really wanted a book that spoke about how to address the strengths of that community um, when training mental health practitioners. You know, so I'm wondering if the idea of the book or the idea that inspires a book is the observation that there wasn't or there hasn't really been a coherent methodology about how to teach LGBTQ psychology. In, in other words, was it your experience that it was, it was treated kind of like an addendum on, mm-hmm. on graduate right. curricula and, and not really thought through about what needed to be taught regarding working with this population? Yeah, correct. Absolutely. And at the same time, there was such an increase in visibility to LGBTQ community in general. So it, it, it was, is that I don't know if this book would have been able to come out necessarily 10 years ago, if there would have been such an audience, but now there is because of increased visibility. So then I'm wondering who, who is your audience? Is it mental health professionals who work with LGBTQ clients or is it the folks who teach those mental health professionals? I think it's actually both because what we recognize is, is that there are individuals who traditionally teach in uh, graduate coursework, but then there's also professionals and practitioners that are in the field who are actually doing more kind of psychoeducation work. So they may be going into communities and doing presentations. Um, and by communities, it could be, a mental health agency, it could be a religious organization. So there are folks that are actually doing the kind of uh, psychoed or primary prevention work that might need some assistance um, and some some kind of theoretical grounding in how to do the work that they do. So this is to help those people know what it is that what it is that needs to be taught about LGBTQ psychology in any of those settings. And also, I think your book covers a lot how how best yes. to do it. Yes, we, we try to put in also not just theory, but also pra- practical information, including um, for every chapter, there are at least three or four activities so that the person reading the book can, can take those activities and, and incorporate, in, incorporate it into their work, whether it's an outreach program they're doing or an undergraduate course. And, and just, just to sort of 
take a snapshot of where we are. I, I can relate to your experience in grad school. In my, in my grad program, I, I sometimes felt like LGBTQ was a module, um, <laughs> you know, among many. Um, but what do you think is the status of teaching LGBTQ psychology today in 2017 in, in most graduate programs? Like, do you think we're doing better is what I'm really asking. Okay. We'll just go back and forth. It it varies widely. It's, it's amazing. The differences even you can, I can do a snapshot of within a 10 mile radius from where I live, uh, five different colleges, universities, and they're very different how it's touched. Some are not touching it at all. Matter of fact, it's um, recommended not to be touched. Others are incorporating it throughout coursework. So it's not this special module that when we're talking about all working with all different types of individuals, um, gender and sexual uh, diversity is is addressed as much as race, ethnicity, and and religion and so forth. But I, I, I'm going to give you a great example. Um, I got a call two weeks ago, actually from a high school, and they had a uh, a student who was extremely upset because it was the last week of class and. Uh, in their health class, no one had talked about transgender issues. And the teacher had said, well, we incorporated it throughout the year. And the student said, no, you really didn't. We said that we, we would put the word out there. We put out LGBT, but we never addressed the T and we rarely addressed the L, G, and B. Mm. So I think there's more of this idea that you, you, you throw in the words and it counts. And it really isn't. There's so many unique issues, which mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll talk upon as we go on. Yeah, you know, Theo, in the book, you guys talk about the the importance of queering, and I and I love your use of that word as a verb. Maybe you could tell us what you mean by that. But but what I really want to ask you is, you're you're talking about queering not just the educational content, but the queering of educational process. And and I'm wondering what you mean by this. Yeah. So Jeannie and I really, I think, talked um, specifically in parts of the book about the idea that for us queering educational process really speaks to the idea of um, creating multiple perspectives. So I think for us, queer theory really speaks to the idea that there has been traditionally kind of one way that individuals speak about um, LGBTQ communities. And that's often kind of from a reductionistic pathology focused lens And so for us, queering really means that you can identify and incorporate multiple perspectives into teaching. And what that could mean would be providing opportunity for for students to engage with one another. Um, Our experience has been that often what happens with instructors is, is that when they get to the lecture on LGBTQ psychology, especially if the instructor themselves has a very narrow lens, what often happens is, is they speak about individuals like they are one specific group. They may unfortunately target LGBTQ students in the classroom and ask them to speak about their own experiences and then generalize those experiences to the entire population. And so what we hope to do is to actually say, no, the experiences of LGBTQ people are pretty varied. And so being able to really um, challenge that, reductionistic lens. But then I, I wonder if you ever feel, Jeannie, like it's becoming increasingly harder and harder to teach 
quote-unquote LGBTQ psychology as though it's one coherent homogenous thing because as Theo is saying it's it it's an umbrella that contains you know various various uh, subcultures you might say or various um, different populations where the experiences are not always the same so how you know how do you deal with this issue of um, addressing all the variability within the community? I, for me personally, that's the best part of teaching um, LGBTQ psychology, that you do not make it this one, one size fits all. Um, the reason I've been teaching this since the mid 80s is because there's not a week that goes by, there's not something new for me to learn and to understand and incorporate. So Absolutely, this homogenization is, I think, where, where we could absolutely get in trouble. So to be in this field, it's, it's a very dynamic field. It's, 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 it's queering. It's ever-changing. So it does, you don't have to look at that as a scary thing, like, oh, my gosh, I'll never know it all. There will always be new words. You can always ask. You can always ask people what they mean by something, whether you're working individually with a client one-on-one or whether you're working with teaching a group of 40 people. So I think that's, again, the excitement of this topic. And, and what are some of the innovative teaching methods that people might find in the book? I think, Jeannie, I'm going to take this. Is that okay? Yes, please. Thank you. Um, I think um, we were able to really kind of capture the idea that part of the innovation related to teaching is that individuals are doing such different things in many different arenas. So um, the book really, I think, tries to capture that, A, LGBTQ psychology is being taught in so many different locations. So outside of classrooms, inside of classrooms, religious organizations, mental health organizations, hospitals, um, community-based non-mental health organizations. And so I think part of the innovation is where it's being taught. I think the other thing is, is how it's being taught. So talking about more kind of lecture based, um, experiential activities. Um, and I think the, one of the neat pieces of our, of our book is that we really tried to, to capture all of those innovative practices in a way that people could replicate them. So folks could pick up the book, look at some of the activities that are embedded in in each chapter and really, uh, really take those different innovative practices um, on the road with them. Uh, Theo, do you have a favorite or is there a particular method that, that you have found particularly fun or, or effective? You know, I don't have a favorite. I've learned a lot. Um, I think one of the neat things is, is literally kind of being able to look at all of the different works that people are using and go, for me at least, think, gosh, I wonder how I could use that. I think, um, I think for me, one of the, the favorites that um, I have used in Chapter 8 is the, the different activities that I've used specifically with undergraduate students related to kind of helping them recognize their own kind of um, identities and orientations. There's a variety of different um, activities that are really meant to help people kind of gain some self-awareness. And those are the ones that I would use most readily. What about you, Jeannie? Do you have a favorite or or go-to 
methods of engaging students around this topic? I do. Anytime I'm doing a training, there always has to be a small component um, of experiential, just so people, it's more dynamic for them. Uh, one I really like, and something I, I also do is jury consulting. So I'm always looking at the group dynamics. So one exercise I do with when I'm teaching ethics around this topic is to do a mock jury and to have the students take on the roles of different people in different cases. Um, a couple cases in particular you might get to later is, uh, for example, a student, uh, the Ward case, who was at Eastern Michigan University and um, stated that was she was unable to work with LGBT an LGBT individual because of a same-sex, quote, behavior. So she would automatically re- refer. Now, that's, that's great to read about, but it's a whole different thing when you have two groups and you break the room up randomly, having the two to come in and talk about that and take both sides and both perspectives. Mm-hmm. And then when you bring in the, the, the APA or ACA ethical guidelines, it's a whole new world. I mean, it's, it's, it, and that's part of the, the assignment that they need to do that. That one's much more intense, say, than um, one of my go-tos that was actually, I have in another book that's coming out soon, but more about dealing with um, microaggressions in LGBT individuals, particularly um, how, almost like they're paper cuts. And paper cuts, one paper cut won't take someone out, won't kill them, but when you keep getting paper cuts in the same place over and over, for days, weeks, months, what happens? It gets infected and it gets much more serious. So people um, resonate with that one because who hasn't had a paper cut? And it seems to, they get it really quickly. That, that, is, that is a pretty poignant way to, to describe microaggressions. If it's all right, Jeannie, I want to go back though to your um, in-class exercise to make sure I understand mm-hmm. that. Are you, are you saying that you yeah. have a kind of mock trial where mm-hmm. where different sides have to argue, you know, one side for, say in this case, the the person who's deciding not to work with a certain population because of her personal beliefs, and then another another team, I suppose, arguing, making a case against that choice. Is that how it yep. goes? Two teams, and on the team will be the student, um, a mental health provider who's speaking to the ethical issues, and then. Uh, quote a lawyer and I know we don't have lawyers but someone who's kind of that keeps it moving and same on the other side so you have students who are actually wrestling with um, all the many dynamics that go into making a decision of what you can and what you can't uh, when you're working with a client what to keep in mind Uh, I, I say to them this isn't about the law piece but I ask them to think about I mean there's some new laws that have come in place that are are really impacting us as providers and us out day to day working with clients. Um, also around graduate student training, there's a, a law in Arizona, HB 256, uh, the graduate students, they, they, there can be, there are parts that they don't have to, to take part in learning if they do not feel it meets their requirements of where their personal beliefs. Well, and that, that brings us to a really important and I think sensitive issue, which is how you handle situations where, and how you recommend that other teachers handle situations in which maybe there's a student or maybe there are certain students 
whose religious beliefs or, or other personal beliefs for some reason predispose them to not want to work with someone in the LGBTQ population or to even have negative attitudes or prejudices against that population, what should teachers do when, when they actually have those kinds of biases in the classroom? How do you handle that? Uh, Theo, do you want to, do you want to take a shot at that one? Sure. I mean, so I'll also, I think, well, there, I have multiple thoughts. Um, and Jeannie, I know, and I have both actually dealt with this situation. And so I, I'd also love to hear her perspective, but I think the first thing obviously is making sure that as a program, the, or as a, as a, um, university that the school has policies in place related to what um, is needed. So in Jeannie's chapter related to ethics, there are very specific statutes that folks need to have in place related to not only what uh, students can expect in the program, but kind of what expectations are related to multicultural competence and their respective ethics codes. So um, there are copious articles that really speak to what happens um, in those specific situations. And so I think the first thing would be to make sure that the program knows what its own kind of guidelines are. Mm. And then I think the second thing is to really make sure that if the student is open to learning, kind of helping them to incorporate multiple different belief systems. So not necessarily saying that their belief system is wrong, but what what should be their framework if and when they have a client that either A, presents initially as LGBTQ or comes out throughout their their work with that client. What do you think, Jeannie? I, I think Theo's right on target. It's, it's that often personal values of an individual, of a student, may not outweigh our ethical obligations. And as far as a career, a career is an elective. We can go into many different careers. The beauty of going into counseling is that you may have your personal beliefs and, not or, but also have your professional beliefs. The professional beliefs, however, they're, they're core competencies, core companies of ethical requirements in the profession. So there are going to be many times in other areas as well, not just about um, LGBT issues where you, you're not always going to be in agreement or it's going to go against your personal values. But isn't that part of the, the learning process to understand on a professional level how to work with an individual and support them in, in where they're going? It, it sounds to me like your, what you're teaching in such a case is, is far deeper than simply knowing about a population and how to work with it. But, but, knowing how to be a professional who can have personal beliefs and professional beliefs that may not, may not mix very well or may, may not overlap a hundred percent, but, but that one as a professional can hold uh, both sets of beliefs at the same time, that one doesn't need to be someone different in order to be a mental health professional. Am, am I getting it right? Yes. You're saying it beautifully. I mean, I think for both Theo and I, we come from a background where at any point we might have had 60 students in the field doing practica and internships. So it, th this came out of um, daily life lessons of what happens in the real world when a student 
and, and, and students are learning. It, it's a process and it takes time. And, and to understand, for, to help them understand, to be able to hold both the personal and professional together. Now, Theo, you, I think you mentioned earlier that a lot of what people will find in the book is uh, suggestions for how to teach in an ex- to teach this kind of material in an experiential way. I think it's important to distinguish that from classes or, or coursework that's more didactic, you know, more lectures, more PowerPoint slides and information. What what exactly do you have in mind when you advocate for ex- or, or talk about experiential learning? What, do, what does it mean to um, teach this in a more experiential way? So I think there are portions of the book that speak about that more didactic course structure. So there are, um, for example, one of the chapters speaks a lot about kind of the health belief model and speaking specifically about the ways in which um, kind of sexuality can be incorporated into more didactic-based instruction. I think for us, experiential learning means more of an active-based content. So using activities where learners actually get to share their own experiences um, and also co-create knowledge together versus kind of being fed knowledge by an instructor. And so I think for us, experiential learning is not just necessarily people sharing their own experiences, but creating those experiences with others. And and Ginny, what would you say, I know this might be a weird question, but what should be the goal uh, when one is teaching LBT- LGBTQ psychology? Like what, like, what is a classroom goal? A classroom goal is for working, uh, I mean, one p- piece is obviously competency, mm-hmm. that working with mental health providers, that they can go out and work with a myriad of individuals. But I think it, for me, because um, I do a lot of training also in school districts and, and um and companies, and for me, it's it's a lot about creating, helping individuals create a safe and supportive learning environment or work environment for all individuals. And in the all, it really does include LGBTQ individuals. And my my experience is that it's not most people aren't coming from a place of malice; they're more coming from a place of they don't understand. Uh, and and when you Go at a rate that people can understand and and respectful and let people ask lots of questions. And that quote, there are no stupid questions. You see in front of you, absolutely see people relax and and learn. And through the understanding, that's where you get a much more open environment. But to stay with that for a moment, Jeannie, I'm, I'm wondering how you achieve that kind of relaxation because I, I, I wonder if you've observed what I've observed, which is that, and let, let's imagine someone who's not an LGBT person, a heterosexual mm-hmm. person, that person can learn all sorts of language and words and, and learn about, and, and, and that person can take in all sorts of information and knowledge. But, but I, I sometimes find that even, even the most um, knowledgeable straight folks, uh, the straight folks who are the most knowledgeable LGBTQ things that doesn't mean they necessarily feel comfortable talking about it. You, you still sometimes see that they feel a little paranoid or they feel a little very careful about ever saying the wrong thing and being afraid to Absolutely. really engage. And I, I wonder how, like, <laughs> how, how do you help people not just take in the knowledge, but really 
feel comfortable asking questions, sharing opinions, not worrying so much about saying something that's wrong. I'm going to give you one of my life secrets then for teaching. Oh, please. Um, (laughs) First of all, uh, and this is only for me personally, I I believe a place where there's that when you relax people that you're, you're, that the humor can come into it a bit, just calms people down a bit. But the life lesson I've learned is what I call the take back chip. And when I'm going over guidelines, any training, whether there are three people there or 300, I go over the guidelines about confidentiality and so forth in the beginning. I always include the take back chip. And people are like, what's that? And I say, you can ask any question. And you can take it back in 38 seconds or three minutes or three days. But if you're so busy being politically correct not to ask questions and worry about what people are thinking about you, you do not ask. When you have the take back chip, you can ask a question and it just relaxes people. And you'll hear them three minutes later say, I want to take that back. Or really what happens is they don't even need to say that because people just start relax- relaxing and asking things. That, that's kind of brilliant. When people take it back, why do, they want to, why do they want to take back a question? They don't want to take back the question. They want to take back, um, I think that they, they almost want to take back that they wish – they they always worry that people will worry about them. Will they think I'm this or that? But then just one time clarifying that again, we, we're here to learn and that we're all learning and that I'm still learning. And I'm always make sure in the beginning I talk about that this is a field I'm always learning in seems to relax people. I also say, if I do not know the answer, then we'll find out. Right. So they're hearing the person up there quote the experts say, hey, I don't always know this, and sometimes I need to ask, or often. So it just starts relaxing people in the room. You, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the use of humor because, uh, Theo, I think in the preface of the book, you mentioned that you use a skewed sense of humor. What, what do you mean by that? I think making sure that individuals feel comfortable in a room um, without necessarily making um, the classroom or learning space um, a comedy hour, right? So I will often you I will often use humor as a way to connect with students without necessarily making it the focal point. Um, and so the skewed piece is more about making sure that you are comfortable without being um, without being kind of like really explicitly humorous. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Theo, have you ever had a student? in a, in one of your classes ever explicitly express some, some kind of bias or some kind of anti LGBTQ prejudice. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering how you handled that it, and, and how you, how one can handle that in a way that, that is a teaching moment for the student, but that also kind of honors and protects the other, the other students in the class who might be offended. Yeah. I mean, what, has often happened for me will be students who may actually understand, let's say LGB experiences, but may not necessarily understand transgender related concerns or, or um, kind of identities or, or issues that specifically impact the trans community. And so I think obviously it depends on in that moment, what is being said and then allowing the, classroom to be a place where one 
the student feels safe enough to express some of those thoughts and then two will be a place that it doesn't necessarily allow the individual to feel as though they're being singled out but that um that instead individuals are really feeling like the entire space is one where everybody's learning conjointly which allows the the student in question to feel like they're Beliefs can be challenged, but not in a way that silences them or makes them feel marginalized in due turn. So I think creating a space um, or doing an activity where everybody kind of gets to learn and participate concurrently. That, that, uh, that's to me sounds like one of those things that makes so much sense conceptually and, and is a great ideal to strive for. But in, in my practice, sometimes, you know, I've had situations where someone has said something offensive and the other students or some of the other students have kind of wanted me to take a side or have wanted me to say more or do more in defense of, you know, the group or the population that, that was um, spoken about negatively. Uh, Jeannie, have you ever been in that kind of situation where you've been asked or pushed to kind of, you know, referee or expected to, um, to handle something differently than you did? Uh, yes, on a regular basis. Uh, one, I think Theo and I both understand the importance of patience in the learning process, and that just because someone is, is, is saying something doesn't mean that they can't be moving. And to have the patience of, of an individual group moving even an inch versus three feet makes a big difference. So... With that patience, I mean, part of it is the process of understanding where the individual is going. The, the, the big part I, I work a lot on is prevention, or be, not prevention as much as being proactive. So in the beginning of a course, and along the way, I'll remind students when there isn't something coming up that sometimes we'll, we'll have little, little, um, little smoke bombs that drop in a class and I'll say they happen. That's part of learning process. And some of those smoke bombs we can address right then. But sometimes it's my job as the instructor to make space outside of the classroom. And you might not see that work happen. And so you're always welcome to come talk to me, but sometimes it's not always appropriate that it happens there. And sometimes it is. Uh, I always find that with patients, they're opportunities to come back to something. Sometimes I'll deal with it right then and there, but others I'll, I'll come back to it maybe an hour later into a talk or a week later. The opportunities always come back. You know, another thing that gets covered in the book that I think is really important is the idea of personal identification versus teaching competence. You make the point that they're not the same that LGB, not all LGBTQ identified people are qualified to teach about LGBTQ psychology and that not all people who teach LGBTQ psychology necessarily need to be LGBTQ identified personally. Theo, can you, can you speak more about this distinction? I think one of the experiences that Jeannie and I have had is that there have been some really kind of incorrect inferences made about individuals based on their sexual orientation, either about their teaching competence or um, about whether or not they need to identify in order to teach about a specific issue or topic. And I think um, 
Jeannie and I have both had experiences in which we found exceptions to both of those norms. And so being able to really explicitly state that, it's funny that you mentioned that specific point because I think when we were sitting down and kind of thinking about what were some main points that we wanted to get across in parts of our book, that was definitely one of them. In other words, it kind of begs a question then, um, and Jeannie, maybe you can speak about this. Can a straight person teach LGBTQ psychology? Absolutely. And not every LGBTQ person is, is qualified. Having a personal experience doesn't, first of all, one's personal experience does not um, generalize the entire populations. Uh, so I absolutely believe that anybody can regardless. And it's not a, a given that because you can put a rainbow flag in front of your your classroom um, because you identify as queer that that you are qualified to do so. So what is what does a straight person, I mean, how does a straight person prepare to teach a course on LGBTQ psychology? They purchase the book called... <laughs> <laughs> A lot of ways that they 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 do for their other courses, but the, the, to take the time to understand a lot of the unique issues and not just assume that that they're generalizable issues that go across. Um, Theo brought up earlier being lesbian, gay, and bisexual can be some issues, but there's some very unique issues for gender expansive and transgender individuals, and uh, a competent trainer. A professor needs to understand what those unique issues are and not just put everybody in in one um, melting pot. Which which leads me to want to ask you about uh, another thing. You know, Theo, I, I I wonder what you think of a trend that I've noticed. At least here in New York, I, I associated with the William Allenson White Institute, a local psychoanalytic institute, and and I run an LGBTQ study group there, and I've been working with a a group to conceive perhaps of a, some, a, a curriculum for teaching LGBTQ issues. But when you look around at other institutes in New York, at least, I find that many places now teach courses that are more broadly conceptualized as being about gender and sexuality rather than about just LGBTQ uh, psychology or the LGBTQ population. I wonder if, number one, you've observed that same trend, you know, towards thinking about gender sexuality on a spectrum and teaching about the full range of issues that come up um, and what you think about it. Do you think that that's a wise sort of pedagogical shift to make, or do you think there's something to be said for retaining a special focus on, you know, this population as a, as a kind of separate population? Yeah, I mean, I don't actually think about it as an either or. I think about it as a both and. I think there are some mm -hmm. individuals who do actually really speak about kind of sexuality and gender on a wide range, which I think is such a critical piece of a movement to understand kind of people's diverse experiences. And so I absolutely think that's really important. And then I think that there are, you know, um, unique issues that really face individuals who are LGBTQ identified and their concurrent mental health needs. And so I think having specific courses about um, their kind of overall mental health and well-being is also important. So I would say um, 
yes. And I think what that speaks to is actually a real concurrent need, not just to have a course, but to actually incorporate and infuse um, gender and sexuality broadly defined into a variety of different courses, which I, you know, I'm, I'm always a proponent of. And Jeannie, what do you think? I think Theo said it beautifully. I really do. I love the whole both and idea of this. And this comes up a lot. Um, you know, people like, well, can you keep adding on more letters to the acronym? Well, I mean, that represents the continuum that, 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 that three-dimensional approach to understanding gender and sexuality. It's not binary and it's not, we we can't go by that. So when we talk about any of these courses, whether they're LGBTQ or gender and sexuality um, identities, it's times you need to do the deep dive into certain topics and come out. Uh, So that's, that, but that's part of the fun that you can talk about the unique as much as some of the more, overarching themes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Ginny, another thing that you guys cover in the book is the importance of teaching history and mm-hmm. for people to know the history of the LGBTQ movement and any history re- that's relevant for understanding gender and sexuality. T- tell us a little bit about why you think this is important. Uh, I love doing the history chapter. Uh, I probably drove Theo crazy because I would call him telling him stories and, be, and <laughs> it's it. For me, history repeats itself. So if you want to you want to be proactive and you want to be preventative, look at what's come before you. So how LGBTQ individuals have been dealt with for, through the centuries and being kept in control um, via religion, law, and medicine, it just it, it comes around again. We're facing in many ways again around laws we see today, around religion, um, uh, mental health restrictions. Um, it's, it's how, how is current power, how is, how, how is it being upheld, um, in society? It's, it's, it's circular, comes around. So I love the historical part. Yeah. And, and, you know, Theo, one of the things that I think is, is fun, but that can get kind of weird or tricky about teaching history is that's, you know, some of the most important figures in history who talked about sexuality and, and gender, you know, some of their ideas were just really crazy or really wrong by our standards. I mean, you, you don't have to go further than Freud to see that as, as, as someone whose views on sexuality were sometimes very revolutionary, but also really backwards or outdated. And so I'm wondering, Theo, what kind of reactions you get from students when you're teaching history and how it is that you convince them of the importance of reading and really, really knowing uh, work that might seem outdated now, but that needs to need to be known about. I mean, I think what's neat about the mental health field is that a lot of individuals may come to the field having not worked in other disciplines, but that I have a, a wide variety of different individuals in classes or lectures that actually come from different careers. And so their ability to understand multiple perspectives is really unique and and quite broad. I think one of the things that happens when individuals read these kind of historical views is that they can react um, kind of initially with from a place of, I can't believe someone would think that. Um, right. But then really understanding kind of historical context 
which I think, especially for people that are training to be mental health practitioners, is so important because we then begin to learn, wow, you know what, this is a context um, that um, clients will bring into the therapy office. They are also not necessarily absent from connecting to um, these historical markers. And so how will this historical context, even though you want to pretend that it doesn't exist, how will this impact the work that you do in the room? And how do you bring that in? Mm I mean, I can't, I couldn't agree with you guys more. History is so important. Jeannie, did you want to add something? I would. I, I love what Theo is saying. And it just gives you an opportunity to remind clients and PP training about take things in context. Understand what's going on in that time period. Understand what's going on in our time period right now. What's going on in your workplace right now. What are the themes? There's no better way to do it than looking at it historically. And, and it's, think, it's so easy to think we have it all right now. And oh, who knows yeah. what our ideas and practices will look like 20 years from now. Oh. It also lets us highlight people like Evelyn Hooker who haven't necessarily had a highlight on them, uh, maybe in the last few years, but, but that, that made huge strides uh, and, and went out of their way. Evelyn Hooker, for example, talking about can straight people work with LGBT people. Q people, her research made such a difference being a straight cisgender woman and helping us understand about uh, the, the positive aspects, the, the mentally healthy aspects of being LGBTQ. You know, there's so much contained in your book, much more than we can cover in one interview. I want to make sure our listeners know, though, uh, that the book is, it's, it's not just a, an academically rich and rigorous book. It's, it's actually like a workbook and contains lots of activities and suggestions and ideas, which makes it really practical and, and useful, especially for people who maybe don't have a whole lot of teaching experience. I, I'm wondering whose idea was it or how did you come to the idea to uh, make it that kind of book? It's, it's who we are. Yeah. I think um, both Jeannie and I are not people who um, don't see the bridge between theory and practice. And so um, I, I love what Jeannie was saying earlier about really wanting to make sure that um, there is um, a wide range of experiences. And I think obviously for me as well, that wide range of experience can actually generalize to um, the range of experiences that happen within the mental health field. Some people are really theoretically oriented and some people are practice-based. And right. so wanting to make sure that um, that diversity is also really incorporated into the text. I, I, I think that it is. It's, it, I think you definitely achieved that goal with this book. We're almost out of time. Before we go, though, please uh, tell us each what you're working on now, what you've got coming up next. Yeah. Um, honestly, right now, um, I am working on another volume related to, uh, clinical supervision. Um, so really looking at the ways in which kind of culture, history, and context impacts the supervision process. Um, and hopefully that will be out in 2018. I hope that you will consider coming back on the show to talk about that I would bug. love to do that, yes. That'd be great. What about you, Jeannie? I'm working. I start in the fall. I'm going to put a, a, a limit on number of uh, how many times I get on an airplane in training because I really want to 
Pilates trainings online. So they are accessible to whether it's an elementary school, whether it's a graduate program, to really get these out there that, that, that any clinician can get to. So that's my next goal. And um, along that way, to, to have some couple more chapters to finish it, a few more books. And, um, but that's, that's the next big one to tackle. That, that's, that sounds exciting and very, very forward thinking. I'm sure that'll, uh, be a lot easier in your schedule. Um, I, I'm just going to take this moment. I don't know if you can tell, but, but Theo and I working together have, we started this many a year ago working on projects and, I would just give the advice to other people who work with a co-editor, find someone as, 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 as smart and um, dedicated, who sticks with deadlines, who can bring humor in on a daily basis. Yes. And we were actually ahead of schedule on this book. What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> really, we planned this out from the beginning. We were, we gave really, straight information, sorry to say straight, but we gave <laughs> straight dates to people what was due and how we supported them along the way. And Theo and I would just touch base. We'd have our regular ways to touch base, but then we would also just do um, quick touch check-ins and it made all the difference. And it was actually yeah. really fun. I think the, um, the interesting piece about writing a book like this is that there, um, there really isn't a lot of literature related to sexuality and gender um, in the marketplace. And so um, I think one of the things that I think about is, is for individuals who are interested in, in writing is, um, as Jeannie is saying, is to not necessarily be afraid to, to really go for it and to find individuals that really kind of um, work the way that you do and speak your own truth. Because I think there's so many people that have valuable um, stories to tell and also people that really actually speak uh, and can speak about the multiple ways in which they infuse diversity into the courses that they teach. And, um, you know, if there are people that are interested in listening to this, that really want to do that, um, as Jeannie says, find the person that really, um, excites you and kind of ignites your passion. That's such great advice. Thank you for sharing. I really, I really appreciate it. It's great talking to you guys about your book and just it's been fun talking to you guys so thank you for coming yeah. on the show thank you so much thank, thank you for having us sure the book again is called teaching lgbtq psychology queering innovative pedagogy and practice edited by my guest theo burns and Jeannie stanley uh again thank you guys take care take care bye, bye. This is Eugenio Duarte in New York, your host for New Books in Psychology. I really hope that you've enjoyed the interview that you just listened to, and I also hope that you'll keep letting me know what you're reading and who you might like to hear on the show next. To send me a message, go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on Contact. Until next time, have a great week.